I'm Russ. And I'm Shane. We see the world through the eyes of biologists, conservationists, and bow hunters. Welcome to the Ecological Approach Podcast. Oh, that's better. Haven't seen you in a while, man. Yep. It's been a while. Um, How's that for sound? Pretty good? All right. Yeah. Yep. Sounds pretty good. Uh, yeah. I'm okay with that. Well, Shane, yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen you, buddy. Yeah. Married man. <laughs> Living right. a few hours away or a couple hours away now, so harder to get some content out there, but taking advantage. You're in town. Let's... Uh, Let's do a podcast. So you had some prescribed burns today you were working on. Yeah. Yeah. Portion of, um, yeah. Portion of tall grass prairie. It's part of the regular management. Try to burn it every five years or so. So and, uh, what are the benefits to burning grasslands like that? Um, a big one is reducing woody, uh, woody species growth. Which will eventually outcompete the the ground cover tall grass prairie plants. Um, it uh, nutrient cycling it, it brings a lot of the nutrients from the the biomass in those dead stalks and puts it back into the soil, which the, the plants uh, seem to do well. It stimulates flowering and seed production, stuff like that. I guess um, it, it it gets get sunlight to their uh their green parts faster because they don't have to fight their way through all the dead thatch and things like that but it also warms up the soil quicker so it might start the spring you know um growth uh just a little bit earlier than it might otherwise gives a good opportunity for increased diversity because some of the seeds and smaller plants and stuff like that that don't get the sunlight they're able to you know grow probably better in a situation like that than uh other years seems to do something to the seed bank too it really seems to stimulate i think that must be the sunlight hitting that soil again it does something and you get like uh you get a really good year for annuals like milk warts or you know some of the different um sedges and stuff that are annuals they'll just the uh what is it the giardias or agalinus they seem to always do great after a burn. It stimulates those seeds that were in the soil. Um, definitely you can tell. And, and there's certain species of plants too, right? Like Blazing Star just has these incredible flowering years. On, yeah. on Iron Weed seems to do well. Um, right, uh, Eastern Prairie Fringed Orchids, they seem to do really well after burns. Um, as far as flowering goes and seed production and stuff like that. And some of the larger trees, I mean, you, you say you're, you're burning through there to take out some of the woody shrub competition, basically, that, that competes with the grasses and the forbs. But some of the trees are, uh, they're adapted for burn, for, you know, for surviving burns, grassland burns, like some of the black oaks and things. They have a real thick, corky bark and uh, they can withstand they can withstand these grass fires pretty well. Sometimes fire does get up in them though. Yeah. And fire is a natural process. So, you know, we have a tendency to want to, because I think we all agree trees are good, but 
in some situations, you know, a, a natural part of the cycle, they, they get damaged and really nothing wrong with that, but it's nice to preserve some of those big ones. Um, so they're not too affected by the fire, but, um, in a perfect undisturbed, you know, region with, with different eco type, different ecosystems and things like that. Like, yeah, you would get natural disturbance such as unchecked fire, you know, massive herds of grazers, beaver dams, you know, come and go over millennia and it changes the landscape. And yeah, you'd always have these little areas of disturbance where grasslands would persist for a while and eventually succeed into a thicket and into a forest but there's enough land and enough area where there's always some other disturbance that is going to um open up these areas for the grasses and the forest but in our fragmented landscape where we suppress every fire and beavers don't even well they've just recently come back after a long absence but uh you know the big grazing animals like we, we just don't have those disturbance uh events like what would happen in uh you know in a pristine let's say landscape so you have to be the agent of disturbance and that's where you come in on a day like today uh burning off some of these sites being that disturbance and um helping to maintain the grassland so good work buddy yeah it's always fun to be a part of see it happen and they're pretty pretty incredible things when when those flames start whipping and you feel the heat from their hot fires and um so that helps yeah kill off some of those small diameter woody species and it seems to me like prairie grasses prairie vegetation a lot of it doesn't stay green. Like a lot of it just gets real crispy and dry. Those are the warm season grasses as opposed to cool season grasses, which is going to be a lot of the lawn grasses and a lot of late, like the, a lot of non-natives, but a lot of nat- some native stuff too that retains green and, and will actually photosynthesize all year. Um, prairie species, it's almost as if they've evolved to burn. Um because they just burn so well. I mean, if I don't have kindling, if I can find a bunch of big blue stem, I'll use that. And it's better than paper. I mean, it just wants to burn. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is pretty neat. And the timing of these burns, uh, it's something kind of important to, to touch on. The timing is situated so that it's early enough in the year where you're not having, you know, mass snake emergence or, you know, other reptile or amphibian activity um you're not getting a lot of breeding birds um but it's still late enough in the year where things have dried up a bit the snow is gone you know and um so it's a good time to burn early spring and 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 late fall are a good time to burn you want to reduce you want to reduce the the wildlife mortalities um while still getting a, a good hot clean burn off in these areas that we're managing um it it's it's really difficult to even get a burn off period so it's nice when you can have a long burn window like from fall to spring um, and then you take any opportunity that you can to burn it but i have a preference for early spring burns because 
at least then that that area can act as habitat through the winter rather than just being scorched earth all winter mm-hmm. and the small mammals and birds and you know anything else that that uses these areas as habitat there's not a lot of habitat after a burn in the fall but i think when you weigh it all out and we always burn small sites it's always plenty of refuge around the burns so when you weigh it out the net benefit uh probably exceeds just about anything yeah you should see in the bird activity um right after this burn the day later scorched earth it really um Probably a lot of food in there for them. Probably a lot of uh, exposed seeds and insects and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, there's a ton of bird activity in the in that burnt field today. Turkeys and robins and you know the worms. There's no thatch layer to um, for those worms to hide in, so they probably get picked off pretty pretty fast. But they don't have a lot of places to hide. It's amazing how it looks like scorched, you know, scorched earth, and nothing would want to be there. But it attracts stuff, wildlife as well. And, uh, and the greenery comes back fast, mm-hmm. very fast. Like within a week, you're going to see that green haze coming over the site. And within, and within two or three weeks, you've, you've got vegetation just starting to pop right back up again. Yeah. Very cool. So this prescribed burns are a form of, ha- of habitat management, um, a neat habitat management project that that I've kind of got, gotten to watch over the years has been your your own personal backyard, <laughs> and uh, it's it's become quite nice. We were just looking at it at it there tonight, and um, it's come a long way from just mowed mowed lawn to um, well, you can go into detail about it, I'm sure, but you know, countless species of of native plants back there, habitat features, ponds. Um, you know, every level trees, shrubs, and you've gotten chickens recently, which have been a cool little addition to the little backyard ecosystem you've created. So why don't you, uh, why don't you tell, tell, tell everybody about that project? Yeah. You, you painted a picture and I think the impression people have is that I have a lot of property and I don't, my entire lot is 50 feet by 250 feet and I've lived in this house for 20 years, more than 20 years now at this point. And um, I mowed it for like five, six, seven years. I used to mow all that grass at a tractor. And it was like, I've always been a little bit of a nature nut. And it always kind of bothered me that I'd mow it. Well, then, of course, me and you started up on this great big infrastructure project that involved, um, you know, endangered species uh, and, and, you know, we've talked about it before in the podcast, but, and everything that, that was protected, um, was salvaged and removed, but there was a lot of things that were offered, were offered no protection. They weren't species at risk. There was no laws that protected a lot of these plants. So I took the opportunity kind of inspired by you because I know that you'd been doing it to your backyard, uh, to salvage as many species as I could from what would be, you know, imminent destruction, um, a highway, you know, a four lane highway, a six lane highway. Um, nothing's going to survive that. So, yeah, I mean, we, we both did, we, we'd stay late after work and we'd, 
salvage as many different species as we could. And, uh, and I put them in my backyard. So I, I basically, I cut my property in half. So, uh, 250 feet, probably 50 by 250 feet. So probably half of that now is completely naturalized with a good, a good chunk of that vegetation, uh, salvaged from this highway project and other, and other, uh, construction projects. A lot of it, like I get gifted a lot of native plants for my wife and family and that for my birthday, which I love. And, uh, so, and then see, uh, seeds that I collect on my travels, grow them out and plant them. So at last count, which is, this is a very, very conservative number, but I was up to about 170 species of plants, uh, in my backyard. And I know some stuff didn't make it, didn't take, didn't like the conditions in my backyard. I've had a few things show up on their own. Um, a lot of things have, have done great. Uh, plants are finicky. Some of them are very finicky. And there is particular pH and soil type and moisture regime. And there's all sorts of different factors. You know, is it getting the right light? Um, and, and yeah, so, so some things took, some didn't. But yeah, at this point now, you know, I've, I've got to be pretty close to 160, 170 species of plants back there. Uh, there was a brand new species of cricket that was never recorded in Canada before. The first record of that was in my backyard, uh, probably three or four years ago, a redheaded bush cricket, beautiful little thing. Wow. Um, but yeah, so the inspiration for this, aside from what you, what you were doing, we can, we can talk about that too. I'd love to hear about, about your backyard, which is now your parents' backyard, uh, but I'm also a little bit, I don't want to say I'm doom and gloom, but biodiversity isn't doing well. Humanity is responsible for it. And it just seems like one of the, the biggest and most effective things we can do as individuals is provide uh, habitat for wildlife in our backyards. Just think about if everybody did that. I don't think half of the species at risk would be at risk if everybody had a little spot for them in their backyard, even if it was just a little strip along the back that connected, you know, different areas together. So that was really, you know, my, I just think this is trying to do my part to help out uh, biodiversity in a fragmented landscape. It's important, very important. Um, yeah, I totally agree with you that it doesn't seem like much on your own if you're doing it, but if if it was, you know, just a normal thing that everybody did, you know, just had their own native garden in whatever, a little uh, a little quarter of their backyard or something, all that adds up, you know, uh, all these pollinator species and insect species especially would would benefit from from something like that. Um so over this, the course of this project, um, because I know it's, uh, it's been quite the project and it can be a little bit overwhelming if you're, you're thinking about doing something yourself and you don't know what to do. What are some things that you learned from, from doing this process, this habitat restoration project in your backyard, um, that other people could use if they want to get in, you know, if they're interested and they want to do something in their own backyard. Um, kind of what are some, 
some first steps that you would take or what what's the approach that you would look at and uh what's you know the the best way to trans transform a lawn to a nice native garden well there's a lot there's really a lot of things to consider the first thing i'd look at is what is uh my soil like um what is the moisture like the water table the water is it wet is it a look at the the light so right off the bat you're, you're either going to want you're in an area that has that you know sun loving species are going to thrive or it's going to be a shade garden maybe it doesn't get a lot maybe there's like some big trees already there from there um let's assume like in my backyard it was very sunny and it got sunnier because my neighbors cut down two big trees in their backyard and it just opened it right up. Um, define your goals. Uh, so my goal, I have a sunny site that's not too wet, not too dry. There's some crayfish burrows. So I know that the water table isn't that far below the surface. Uh, my, what I wanted to do was attract pollinators and insects. I, I love, I love entomology. I love insects. I love, you know, just, seeing what dragonflies and butterflies are about my backyard. So I wanted dragonflies, butterflies, pollinators. So I needed a pond, a water feature. I needed a bunch of different wildflowers that are going to bloom at different times of the year from spring right till fall. Um, plants don't just offer uh, nectar for, for insects, but I mean, a lot of insects are specific to what their larvae will feed on. In other words, there's a, you know, a few different skipper butterflies that will only lay their eggs on a particular species of sedge and the more different species of sedges and the more different species of plants period that you have, the more insect diversity that you'll have because of all, all of the different host plants that, that you may have in your backyard now. Um, so I went for maximum plant diversity, sunny area. I wanted a water feature. Um, you came up with an idea that I should plant a uh, wildlife hedge because at the time there was there was no fence delineating my neighbor's house and mine. My neighbor didn't love what I was doing. I did it anyways. Um, but I, I thought that was a good idea. So I planted a bunch of uh, berry producing shrubs and, uh, you know, fruit producing shrubs and small trees that I thought the birds would love all along the property line. And, and he's just, we were just out there now. You saw how that's doing. That's doing great. The neighbors have since built a fence. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and the birds use it. Um, I've got high bush cranberry. I've got sweet flowering crab apple, wild plum, uh, nanny berry, prairie rose, <clears throat> bunch of different native uh shrub species and small tree species uh, eastern red bud i've got a common hop tree that i've had for years it's it's big now um and uh you're also looking for species that are naturally occurring to your area um because a they're probably going to do well b the wildlife that depends on them is probably pretty close and is able to use them um and see we've lost so much of it that that is part of the giving back or at least you know 
doing doing your part to help local biodiversity because the landscape around us is like something like 97 or 98 percent developed and they consider agricultural land to be developed land and for our purposes of this discussion it is there's not really any biodiversity in agricultural areas so we're talking about the last two or three percent of natural cover in the entire county two counties around us so um it also ensures that it fits they fit well into the ecosystem they're not going to be an invasive species and take over you know spread outside of your garden um if they're native species, they've grown with competition from these other uh, native species in the area, and they they're balanced. They're they're supposed to be here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's interesting that uh, that we're talking about this because we're just saying you've just got your own place now, and uh, I mean, gosh, you can do anything you want in your backyard. And, and you've just moved in recently, so I know nothing's been done. I, I, I've never been there, but I imagine it's a typical suburban backyard with a lawn and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. So, I mean, what you could do to your backyard might be, that might be just what a lot of people might be inspired to do. Because there's a lot more people that are living in, um, you know, like uh, suburbia. And, uh, yeah, why don't, what do you, what do you plan to do? Do you have any, any visions? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't even had a chance to give it too much thought to be honest, but there's already some mature trees back there. Big sugar maple, um, good size white cedar. Uh, there's a big birch tree in my neighbor behind me's backyard. Um, and then there's a couple, there's a honey locust and a, big Norway maple as well. Um, so it's pretty shady back there, but I'd like to get some, I'd like to get some woody cover in there, some shrubs. Um, I've noticed, I've put some bird feeders out and, um, I've noticed the, I think the birds would feel safer and they'd be coming to the feeders more if there's more security cover around for them. So I'd like to get some shrubs, maybe some red cedars and some, uh, yeah, some different, fruit bearing shrubs and things. Um, like I said, it's shady though. So I don't, I might have some spots where I can get some, some prairie stuff in there, some prairie grasses or, or forbs and flowers. Um, but a lot of it might have to be more, uh, more edge or even forest species. I'd like to have some trilliums, have a nice little trillium patch back there. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess we'll see, but, um, I'm excited to, I'm excited to start on it. It's nice to have some mature trees to start with. Yeah, it is. When you asked me earlier, what are some of the things you need to consider? The first thing that thought that I thought of, and I forgot to mention it by the time I was done talking was, um, plant any trees right away, get them in the ground as fast as possible because they are going to start growing as soon as you put them in the ground. And every year you wait is... I mean, a tree's life, it's on a different scale than yours. You know, an oak tree could live hundreds of years. So, you know, you could enjoy it in some of its glory within your lifetime if you just plant them as early as possible. Yeah. And another important thing is um, if you're planting over lawn grass, if you don't, 
you, you really should get rid of as much of that established lawn as you can. Um, you know, whether that's, you know, a single, I, I don't always, I'd say the use of herbicides should be uh, lower on the list. Um, you know, if you can do it other ways, just by digging up the lawn grass or uh, putting boards over it or something like that to kill the tarp or something, to kill the grasses and then get rid of it. Um, but if you need to, you know, one application in the beginning of a herbicide or something like that, kill off the lawn grass because you want to reduce the competition right away. Those native plants, they, they're they hardy and they're robust once they're, they're established, but early on, um, it's really important to reduce the competition from that, uh, those lawn grasses. Um, what are some of the, the methods that you used to deal with that early? Because in the area that I planted, um, I didn't take the time to really kill off all that lawn grass. I kind of just planted all the, all the plants within the grasses, hoping, you know, I keep that thatch layer for habitat and stuff like that. And I thought the, the prairie native stuff would just eventually outcompete all of the lawn grass but it hasn't really it's um over the long term it struggled i think more than yours has and you did a better job of getting rid of all of that lawn grass before you started um what i started with was a lawn and then i so i planted everything in clumps big enough that i could get my push mower around them and i actually spent the first year mowing all the grass around the clump. So everything that I planted had was able to just grow and thrive and spread and, and drop seeds. But then the year after that, I just left it. And, uh, I don't know, maybe I've been lucky, but it just seems like everything I've planted has dominated over the lawn, the, the turf grass that was there before it could have been the, the turf grass species that I had growing there initially. Uh, you know, maybe you've got species that are a little more hardy or a little more uh, able to hold their own. But, um, once the, um, perennials, the golden rods and things like that start, you know, they grow, they senesce, they, they, they die back and those stems start building up a layer of, um, just dead plant matter, thatch and, and such the lawn grasses, at least in my case, have not been able to withstand that kind of I guess, uh, just basically they're, they are getting smothered. You you said you smother lawn grasses to kill it. Well, that's what, uh, the prairie vegetation is doing. It's just basically smothering every year. And, uh, I rake the thatch and sometimes I'll burn little pieces of it and stuff like that. But you know, lawn grasses haven't, haven't been a problem, which is funny because on some of our prairie, uh, restoration sites, some of the lawn grasses, the bent grasses and things like that, um, are, are invasive like they're there's some of the species that are just, well they're not necessarily invasive but they're persistent mm-hmm. they just they keep coming up and some of the uh forage grasses i'm um, like orchard grass and stuff like that too i mean it's just everywhere it's on it's on every site so yeah it's a bit of a constant battle um when it's an area the size of your backyard though uh, deal with it it's, i enjoy it i go out there and i pull weeds and i you know just mess around and and yeah i got i got it looking just how i wanted it yeah to it's look. looking great it's looking really good um especially seeing it midsummer when it's everything's in bloom um 
It's pretty, pretty spectacular, all the different colors. Yellows from the tall sunflowers and coreopsis and goldenrods and the purples of the, the ironweed and dense blazing star and bergamot and, uh, you know, orange butterfly milkweed and, and purple milkweeds and then the smell of the mountain mint. Yeah, the whites uh, of mountain mint and Culver's root. And, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's something it's part of the, the enjoyment of it is, um, you know, it, it doesn't just benefit the wildlife and it doesn't just benefit our, you know, the environment. It, it, such a benefit for your own enjoyment and health too it's like you're going into your backyard and it's like walking into a a a park you know you don't have to drive to a park and and you can go it's accessible you can walk your little trail you have in your your naturalized area when you get home from work just for 15 minutes or something and it's like it's a reset in your mind almost it's um it's an accessible piece of nature that you get to create, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a classroom, really. You know, I, I, I learn a lot learn my, for my own learning, but even you know, taking my kids around the backyard, or even friends, or you know, uh, I know every time that you stop by, we always go for a walk through the backyard and mm-hmm. see what's flowering, or see what you know, anything. There's always something interesting too. So some uh, some some of the major points, I guess for. If anybody's interested in, in, you know, starting and, and the thing is, it doesn't have to be an overwhelming project. You don't have to, you don't have to transform your, your entire backyard overnight. If you just consistently collect or buy, you know, native plants and just slowly replace the stuff that, um, is exotic or whatever in your garden with native stuff over time, um, you know, that's, that's a good way to do it too. Um, but so what are the, some of the main points, if somebody's looking to do this on their own, um, I think you, know, you got to consider, uh, you got to consider the neighbors, especially if you're in a subdivision or you're somewhere like you can't, um, you don't want to be a bad neighbor. So, uh, one of the ways that you can do that is have a nice defined edge to the garden, um, you know, rather than just letting everything around your house just grow wild, you know, some people would appreciate that. I would appreciate that, but uh, a lot of people wouldn't. And you don't really want to. It's better if you can not cause problems with the neighbors and with the bylaw officer. So a nice, clean, neat edge. I think. Uh, I think that's important. That delineates the garden from you know your your bit of lawn or whatever you have. Yeah, I think that's a, a, an important point too. When people think of a native garden, I think a lot of times they just think of this like overgrown, weedy looking, like un unkept, you know, not taken care of garden or house or whatever. It doesn't have to look like that, you know, like. But it you, can look like that. Yeah, it, it, it can. It can look like that. And, um, you know, there's habitat value and stuff like that. And if that's what you're into. But like if you're not into that and you want to have a more of a manicured garden, well, you can still have a manicured garden, but just choose native species and, um, you know, you can make it as, make it however, you know, look, look however you want. Um, you can suit, suit a native garden to everyone's tastes and uh, it's, it's a benefit. You know, everyone, 
everyone doing their part benefits things as a whole, I think. And one of the other things I think that you need to consider as well as uh, not, you know, getting the neighbors, turning the neighbors on you is, um, and it kind of goes along with making a nice delineated edge is get it designated. It's super easy to do. I got my backyard des what is it? It's designated wildlife habitat by the Canadian wildlife federation. And there is a bunch of different criteria. Like it needs to have cover and a water, some permanent water source and available nesting areas for birds. So, you know, I've got bird houses and I've even got a dead elm tree with big hollow parts on it. So I went through the list and made sure that I had everything that was required to get the certification and, uh, that, and I think it was 20 bucks or something to register. I don't remember what it was, but it was important for me to get this because, uh, well, at the time the neighbor didn't really appreciate what I was doing and I, I couldn't not save these plants. That wasn't an option. So I, I had to just legitimize it a little bit. It legitimized it a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, so, and they sent me this beautiful sign that I put out in front of my, uh, well, it's my backyard. So it's the front of the backyard, the, the naturalized area. And it says certified wildlife habitat, put a nice trail through there. So, you know, like you said, it doesn't need to look like, um, an overgrown, neglected, weedy mess. Mm -hmm. um, you can make it look nice. And there's a bit of maintenance involved and stuff too, like pruning and, and, these things, you know, the dead stocks, you can clean them out. I would suggest leaving as many dead stocks out as you can, because that's where a lot of the insect life spends the winter. Um, so th those are two considerations. Um, yeah. Some other main points, like, um, so make sure, make sure the neighbors are happy to a certain extent. You know, you, you want to be considerate, you know, you're not necessarily going to do whatever they want because not everybody <laughs> agrees with uh with the look of these things but uh, you should try and be considerate um use native species to your area look up i'm sure there's uh you know conservation websites or or just local field guides or something like that get species that are from your area um maximize the diversity of those species um, what are some, you were talking about some, some wildlife, um, houses and, and some wildlife features and stuff like that. Apart from the plants, what, what else could you add to, uh, you know, to make the, the habitat more suitable for, for wildlife, like as far as, you know, nest boxes or, or things like that? Yeah. If you go into a woodlot, I mean, any any forest is going to have hollowed out trees and different, you know, loose bark and areas where birds can nest. You don't, you're not going to have that in your backyard necessarily. Um, so you need to put those artificial tree cavities there, which would be nest boxes and, um, you know, nesting platforms and things like that. And, uh, bat boxes, is another good one. Um, Bats do pretty well around people. They seem to get into attics and into garages and sheds and things like that. But uh, I know of a lot of different bat boxes, and I only know of two that have bats in them. So they're yeah. not always successful, but they can work because I, I know of two bat boxes that have a lot of bats that live in them. Um, 
owl boxes, similar, you know, you said birdhouses, but, you know, a little bit of different design up in a, up in a big mature tree, you can put a bat box or a, uh, an owl box. If you're near water, maybe put a wood duck box. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a good, decent sized pond. Um, I know a lot of people have been getting into like these little, uh, I don't know, like little bee and wasp houses and they're basically just hollow stocks. I mean, I think I'm accomplishing the same thing by just having, you know, loads of stems of dead plants around the place. But if you don't, and if you're going to clean up all your thatch, you maybe you can can build some, something like, um, you know, that these, I don't know much about those to be perfectly honest. I've just seen people do it and I've seen photos. Yeah. Yeah, even something um, just like a pile of rocks, a small pile of rocks, you can make it look decorative um, in a garden. You know, a lot of people have have rocks in their garden for for aesthetics, but it can provide wildlife habitat as well. Maybe like a, instead of, you know, scattering small rocks all over in the area, maybe put them in one pile and then they can be used for snake cover or... Um, that, that reminds me of, of uh, I forgot to mention that <laughs> I did that in my backyard. I had a bunch of rocks and chunks of concrete and that, and um, I, that's what I thought I would do with it. So I, I dug a hole, probably, it's probably three feet deep, and it's probably two feet across, and I filled it with concrete and rocks, and I, I have these nice water-worn landscaping rocks that I had, um, and I just put those on top. And then I covered it with dirt and I planted all around it. So now I've got this, I don't know, I, I don't know if they hibernated it or not, but there, there always seems to be snakes around it. So uh, a snake habitat that I built. And and, and we get, if you can walk through my backyard in the summertime and you're almost certainly going to see garter snakes. Um, they love these rock structure, this rock structure that I made for them. But they also love the ponds. They eat the frogs, and and it's neat to see them go around the ponds feeding and hunting. And, and you would never have seen that if it was lawn. They are only there because I made it. I made it suitable habitat for them. Yeah, pond to water feature is important. Um, just just logs, you know, just cut up chunks of logs or or. Um, big chunk of beech wood or something like that. Like it looks nice in a garden, um, but it provides important habitat as well for insects and, um, you know, maybe even amphibians to, to get under. Um, I brought in, I don't know, five or six yards of sand and uh, I built a big open sandy area and I, people are going to think I'm nuts that are, <laughs> that are listening to this, but if you knew me, this is the kind of thing that I do. And uh, so I built this big sandy area and I built it for for sand wasps and burrowing bees and that. And I thought, ah, you know, I'll build this thing and I see what happens. And it is absolutely loaded with them in the summertime. Like they got boreholes all all through it. It looks like Swiss cheese. And uh, yeah, so that little, little habitat features like that. Um, You know, if you're interested in that sort of thing, these, these all play important roles in pollinating your your fruits and veggies and flowers and trees so i i just like i like the idea that you know maybe i've increased the population of these things just a tiny bit yeah it's rewarding definitely watching it improve and grow over time it's uh it's super rewarding so what's what's step one in your backyard shane 
I'd like to get some, like you said, stuff that takes a little longer to grow, trees and shrubs. I'd like to get those in. It sounds like you've got some, it doesn't sound like you got a lot that you need to take out. And I don't like cutting down trees, especially healthy trees, but I don't, for me, I'm not looking for exotic species. I want native naturally occurring. I'm a little bit of a purist that way. So, but everything you named off, I think I didn't, I didn't catch anything that wasn't supposed to, or let's say isn't yeah. native. Norway maple, there, there's a big one. Oh. It's, it's not in my backyard, it's in my neighbor's backyard, but yeah. Um, and and I mean, we live just across the street. Um, it's like a naturalized ravine, a big, big naturalized park with uh, walking trails and stuff like that through it. So we get, there's a lot of wildlife close by. There's a lot of deer in there. You get deer tracks through the front yard and... Uh, Might be a good seed source. Yeah, uh, you know that yeah. way you're getting locally sourced seed. You know where it came from. It's literally in your neighborhood. Yeah, and it probably do well in your backyard. Yeah, and then um, well, you had you added the chickens to your backyard, which I think is a cool component. You know, it's not necessarily native wildlife, but it still um, provides benefit to you and to. Um, probably add to the garden to a certain extent, fertilize it a little bit. Um, but it's just a, a, it's a neat addition to the backyard. It, it's, it's nice when you can get something back from creating that, that naturalized habitat and that ecosystem. And I think it's mutually beneficial for us and for the chickens. I yeah. mean, I just, I know they're just chickens, but you actually do get to know them. They got personalities and they're like almost like an outdoor pet. And I just, the thought of the conditions that they have to endure to provide us with cheap eggs. Um, I really wanted to get away from that. And that's why, that's why I hunt, that's why I fish and that's why I have chickens. And, um, yeah, it's like uh, good karma. Maybe, maybe that karma will add up and I'll, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll get a deer this year. <laughs> You know, but no, but but really, you know, I, I like to be mindful of, of where my food comes from. And these chickens are, I mean, they're out and they're they're free range all afternoon. Yeah, they've got a good life out there. They have a good they, life. they benefit off of that diversity as well, picking uh, you know, little bits of vegetation and all the insects. Like I assume chasing insects around that backyard. Like they're so coordinated. The, They'll just grab mosquitoes on the wing yeah. <laughs> it's amazing digging through your mulch path for grubs and stuff like that yeah, yeah so it's couple. looking great it's come a long way i i think uh it's something that is important to share to other people and it's something that other people should strive for um you know maybe you can post some photos of it on the uh the instagram page yeah yeah, definitely. I've got some good photos from past years. It's a little early this year for anything, but I will definitely put some stuff up there. Hey, you know what we forgot to do, Shane? We forgot to do wildlife sightings or nature sightings or any yeah. interesting sightings that you had at all. Well, um, it's getting to be you know, late, late winter, early spring. Um, Went out looking for sheds quite a few times. Only found a couple. Um, <laughs> we were like, so unfortunately, let, let's be nothing to uh, <laughs> how many to kilometers on that front. <laughs> how many kilometers have you walked this uh, year? A lot, a lot, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. We were gonna do a we were gonna do a, a podcast about shed hunting, and then we kind of looked at each other and said, "Well, 
we both seem to suck at it. So. We shouldn't be giving advice, yeah. Um, Probably average 20, I don't know, who knows. Well, I hiked 25 kilometers and didn't find one, so probably (laughs) average more than that per shed. Sometimes after prescribed burn is a really good time to find them, but uh, there's there's a community of shed hunters that live around us, and they do a pretty good job of cleaning up, I think. I think they have a pretty uh, methodical approach to it, Mm -hmm. and... um, you know, it's it's a fun pastime, and there's lots of people doing it. So it's slim pickings, I think, by the time the opportunity yeah. comes where you've got a chance to go out and have a look. Yeah. So a lot of the early signs of spring, you know, you start to see some of the um, early birds starting to come back in. I've seen um, eastern Phoebes. I've seen um, a lot of swans moving. Um yeah, birds are killed ears and stuff like that. Um, woodcocks. A lot of those birds are starting to move through. A lot of the early, really early vegetation, like the skunk cabbage, you're starting to see grow out in the the uh, seeps out in the, the in the woods and the swamps and that. Um, the red maples and silver maples are starting to swell. Their mm-hmm. buds are starting to swell up. There's a few things that, like to me, it's. It just, uh, it's so nostalgic. It just brings such a sense of spring and uh, like right back to my childhood. And um, it's, it starts with the Cardinals calling, you know, that's like February, nice warm February day. You get that. And then the killdeers will show up and it's still cold and you might still get snow, but they don't start calling until like March. Or showing up, like you know, they really don't really start showing up till about that time, and then, um, and then it's the chorus frogs. Really, a lot of chorus frogs calling right now. They are the the, the first amphibian to to start calling in the spring. They're a little tiny, thumbnail sized little frog, and these things make a lot of noise for their size. And when there's thousands of them, or, or hundreds, or even dozens of them in a small area. Um, they can make an astonishing amount of noise and, um, they like to spawn in ephemeral pools. So pools that are for the most part predator free or fish free anyways. Um, and they, they get in there early. They, they lay their eggs early. They develop quick and hopefully they get a chance to, uh, transform into their air breathing adult form and then you know before the the pond or the puddle dries up a lot of times that doesn't happen this year is a very dry spring i if we don't get some rain it's not going to be a great year for chorus frogs they're cyclical like that though um but yeah that sounds of those chorus frogs is that is spring you know that is that's when you know that uh that spring is is here or or just around the corner yeah, it's a good time to be outside and be in the woods. Redwing blackbirds is another one that yeah, always. That's one of the first ones. Robin's starting to call a little more. Um, looking forward to. I've never done much turkey hunting, but I'd like to do a little bit this year. Um, looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, that'll be good. Uh, we haven't talked about hunting at all yet. Um, got got my hunt camp uh, booked for this fall. 
Yeah, that's so, exciting. Uh, yeah, excited about that. It's going to be up near Algonquin Park, management unit 54. So uh, I haven't hunted up there. I, I Actually, I have hunted up there. I've never deer hunted up there. Um, but I've gone snowshoe hunting up there, snowshoe hare and uh, rough grouse. And oh, what else have we hunted up there? I don't remember. I've done a lot of fishing up there too. So I haven't been up in that area in a long time. I'm looking forward to getting back. I miss those those uh, white pines and the open granite rock. Yeah, it sounds like it'll be a fun trip. Yeah, swamp, uh, swampy, forested areas. There's some topography up there. Obviously, there's always lakes and waterways, so it's it's exciting. We're looking forward to that. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, not really a whole lot else going on, Shane. So we could, we could wrap it up at that. Um, glad we got to talk about our, our backyards. Spring is here, uh, just about. So if you're thinking about putting some native stuff in your backyard, stop thinking and start doing because, um, our native biodiversity, I think really needs any any little bit of help that it can get yeah i totally agree totally agree can use can always use more you know and every little every little bit adds up so um yeah it's about really why i wanted to talk about uh, why both of us wanted to talk about this because i think it's really important for everybody to do yeah and the and more you know we just kind of touched on things but the more info we can get out there and the more you know just maybe spark spark the idea in someone's mind and uh inspire someone to do something like that on their own yeah and and i mean especially if you have the opportunity to salvage plants from let's say like a development a construction site somewhere where they're just not going to do it even to plant them in your backyard but just find a safe spot for them and plant them somewhere um but that's it guys sorry sorry it took so long to get something out but hopefully we'll put something together soon See you later.